The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Money in Your Life, the radio program that gives you the insight and motivation to be more successful with all aspects of your personal finances. Your hosts are Brian Farr and Ann Hutchins. Today's program will feature experts and intriguing ideas that will show you how money is actually operating in your life. Now, here are Brian Farr and Ann Hutchins. Good morning. You have money in your life, a weekly radio program about the influence of money in your life. I'm Ann Hutchins. And I'm Brian Farr. Brian, you know, retirement and having enough in retirement are often the topics of conversation with my clients. And after we talk about their values and goals and what is enough, we move on to a conversation about investing for retirement. As you know, I'm not a financial planner, but I can demystify investing and help sort out terms with clients so we all have clarity around what we're looking for. There is a dizzying array of choices of advisors and of investment vehicles. But did you know that only 24% of active mutual fund managers have outperformed the market index over the past 10 years? Wow. I knew it was low, but I didn't realize that only one quarter of mutual fund managers are able to perform better than their indexes. That's sobering. It is, isn't it? Not only that, but active managers outperform on average 12 basis points, less than half of 1% before their fees. So when you factor in fees, you may actually be losing money. Ouch. That's not good. Well, now, that's not to say that 76% of active managers are bad managers, but one of the things they have in common is they're human. And as humans, we think and feel. Our guest today is Michael Pompian, an active portfolio manager who takes these human traits into account in his practice, incorporating behavioral finance into his work as a wealth manager Michael is the author of Behavioral Finance and Wealth Management, and we're delighted to have him join us to talk about our human biases and how we can acknowledge and manage them in our lives. Welcome, Michael. Thank you both very much. I'm very pleased to be here. We're really glad to have you. I should also say that you're a partner at Mercer Hammond Investment uh, Consulting and that you've also written three other books one of which is behavioral finance and investor types. And we'll talk about that later on. Okay. look forward to it. Great. So, you know, Michael, one of my first questions, one of our first questions is what is behavioral finance? Okay. Uh, It it is uh, bandied about in the, uh, in the press and, and, and it is, it is a somewhat mystifying um, topic, but it is, it can be explained relatively easily. And behavioral finance attempts to understand and explain actual investor behavior versus theories of investor behavior. So when you look back at, at, at the uh, research that has been done in, in economics, what you find is that 
you go back about 100 years, you see that there was a uh, topic uh, that was developed, uh, again, about 100 years ago that was called Homo economicus, which essentially means rational economic man. And what this means is that uh, the assumption was that people make perfectly rational economic decisions all the time. And this theory was really prevalent for many, many years uh, from, uh, you know, the mid uh, part of the last century up through until, you know, the 1950s, part of the efficient market hypothesis, which uh, we can talk about if you want to, uh, it rests on this assumption of perfect information and perfect decision-making by market participants. And it wasn't until really the 50s and 60s that, that people started to realize, well, some of these theories aren't really making that much sense because uh, people do make irrational decisions. And uh, when I wrote my first book, which came out in 2006, which I actually wrote more uh, from about 2000 to 2003, uh, I, the first line of my, of my book uh, actually references the idea that, that behavioral finance is not a well-acknowledged uh, uh, discipline and that people actually have trouble believing it. Uh, and, you know, fast forward 10 years, I think it's safe to say that the topic is very well accepted uh, and uh, very prevalent in in the financial advisory world, the asset management world, uh, and um, so it's very pleasing to me because I I was you know a big proponent of it uh, a decade ago, and to see it have so much acceptance now is is really terrific. Uh, I was never really under the illusion that people make perfectly rational decisions, uh, and you all you had to really do was look at. Uh, what happened in the late 90s was really my first uh, clear example of being in the business. Uh, well, I, I, uh, I did enter the business in 87 where there was a pretty big market crash, but I was a little early in my career to put that in perspective. But, you know, having worked in the industry uh, through the 90s, seeing what happened uh, with the technology stock bubble in the late 90s, uh, I was doing the CFA during that time, the 96 through 99, and was learning about the efficient market hypothesis and watching what was going on in the markets, which was these internet stocks, which made no money. In fact, many of which were losing massive amounts of money, uh, were being valued at billions of dollars. And it just made no sense. And of course... You know, it all came crashing down. So yeah, uh, we, that was a, my first clear example of uh, behavioral finance in action. Yeah, and we're seeing a little bit more of that now. Right, it hasn't stopped. I mean, we had we've had the housing bubble uh, back in two thousand uh, and eight, two thousand nine, uh, where you had people, you know, flipping houses, uh, thinking it would go on forever, and of course, it didn't. Now, uh, you know, it's not quite to the extremes, but you have, uh, you know, Twitter just went, went public. You know, they're not making very much money. In fact, they just a few days ago, uh, I think the stock was down 18% two days right. ago. I didn't see what it did today. But, um, you know, Amazon.com is, a, is not a profitable business, but continues to, the stock price continues to go up, <laughs> you know, based on, 
you know, the future. And of course, I love Amazon.com. I think it's a terrific, you know, website, and I use it all the time and love, you know, the business. Uh, and I, I think a lot of other people recognize that it's a terrific business. They are reinvesting in the business, and one day, you know, it probably will be profitable. Um, but, uh, you know, that was another one back in the day, back in the late 90s, that I actually owned that one and watched it crumble. And then, unfortunately, I didn't hold that one. I wish, you know, so, I wish I had, but yeah. any of it. So, yeah, so you're, you're telling us exactly what you're talking about, the behavioral finance. We're all human, right? Yes. We make decisions. Exactly. So uh, I'm curious because one of the things that uh, that is true is that the behavioral finance is more broadly accepted. But in your experience, is it widely used by those hmm. who both advise best individuals? Excellent question. Excellent question. Um, I uh, have found the following. So I've given lectures and speeches and really across the world. I've been to uh, Hong Kong, South Africa, Australia, um, Europe, number of places in Europe here in the U.S. as well. And what I've found is this. So advisors have a limited bandwidth in their day, in their week, in their month, in their year, and they don't have time for, you know, massive amounts of training. And so um, what they want is kind of, you know, short snippets of information. And, you know, part of my books and some of my other, you know, Morningstar articles give them that information. When it comes to the firms, so, so are they are they using it? You know, I think so, a, a bit, okay. That's from sort of a bottom-up standpoint, you know, looking at the advisory level. From the firm level, uh, my belief is that it's difficult to quantify, or it has been difficult to quantify, the ROI on this kind of learning. I mean, how do you really quantify the effectiveness of behavioral finance? I personally think that you can do it by measuring client retention, client satisfaction, um, but, you know, I think the, the, from you know, the feedback that I've gotten, uh, you know, over the years, now I'm going to talk more recently in the last year or so, I'm going to tell you a little bit different story, but historically that has been the case. What I've seen in the last literally 12 months uh, or 12 to 24 months is you're seeing firms really embrace behavioral finance. And some clear examples are uh, Barclays. If you go to their website, uh, they have a whole section of their private wealth advisory website dedicated to behavioral finance. They've got PhDs on staff. They've got white papers. They've got a per investor personality tool on their website, um, which to me is fantastic. I really like their stuff. It's, it's not exactly the way I approach it, but that's fine. You know, that, that they have their way of doing it, and I think it's really good. Uh, Merrill Lynch, uh, if you look at their Materials. I happen to know uh, personally the the person who uh, runs their training advisor training, and I had dinner with him about a month ago in New York, and he was telling me that they are just grabbing onto behavioral finance strongly. And I just got sent a couple of articles uh, that they've developed about incorporating behavioral finance into their advisory practice. So, uh, and so. Ahead, can please. I can I jump yeah. in and ask yeah. are they are they bringing it from from your book you talk about getting a sense of which investor type 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the different investors fit into. And so are they taking it down to that level where they're really trying to get more of an individualized profile of their clients? Yes. Uh, well, I think certainly Barclays is. Uh, they're not doing it in the, as I said, the exact same way I'm doing it. Their um, approach is, I th- actually, I think it's a little more complex than mine is. Um, and okay. part of the challenge that you have with this approach is, communication with the client because uh you know you you're you're you're, myself i've been doing this for so long what happens to me is i sit down with with a client and i'm able to because of my background understand okay this this is this kind of investor that kind of investor and one of the things that i talk about is that certain kinds of, of of clients certain kinds of investors need to be either adapted to, what I call adapted to, or moderated. And when I say adapted to, some of the behaviors, and I can give you some examples of this if you want, but some of the behaviors are difficult to change, and you really need to adapt to those behaviors. You, the other you hand, as some, the advisor need to adapt correct. to Correct. You as the advisor. If you're, if you're seeing some irrational behavior, and in my book I talk about biases or irrational behaviors. And if you witness some of these, such as loss aversion, anchoring, mental accounting, and I go through 20 of them in my book, uh, if you see them, some of, some of them you can, you can moderate or change the behavior of certain behaviors. Because okay. they're, if you want to get into it a little bit, they're, they are cognitive biases or they're about of the way people think. On the other hand, there's some biases that are classified as emotional biases. And these um, biases are not so much about how people think, but how people feel about a certain situation. For example, losing money. Loss aversion is an emotional bias, which loss aversion is when investors feel the pain of losses more than the pleasure of gains. You can't really tell somebody you shouldn't feel that way about losing money because that's a very personal feeling right. about, you know, about that situation. Uh, so that's an emotional bias and you really, as an advisor need to really adapt to that. You can't, mm-hmm. you're not, you're going to have a difficult time changing how certain person feels about losing money. For example, mm-hmm. on the other hand, an example would be mental accounting where people put, different money, money in different mental accounts. So this is my retirement account. This is my uh, uh, bill paying account. This is my vacation account. This is my college savings account. So that's and, the thinking kind of. What was that? That's more, that's the cognitive. It sounds the cognitive, like. exactly. You, you can explain to someone rationally, you're, you're, you may have a suboptimal allocation uh, because you're doing it this way. Because often what happens is, you have cash in each one of those accounts. And when right. you look across all of your accounts, you might have 20% cash and that's okay. or 10% cash. And that's not a great investment strategy if you're trying to build money for the long term. So uh, that's the framework for how I go about okay. advising advisors how to, how to break uh, work with their clients uh, who right. are behaving irrationally. 
Okay, Michael, we're going to need to uh, break here in just a minute. But just to summarize, it seems like there's two broad categories, the thinking errors and the feeling. Uh, you're not using the term errors. You're using the term biases. Yeah, but... There's biases around thinking and biases around feeling. And so either an advisor working with a client or if a listener is trying to assess themselves, they if they started with that, that would give them the, the beginning. And then they start to say, figure out, okay, can this be adjusted? Can this be sorted out? Or is this something I need to adapt to? Would that, yeah, that be a, a, cl- that's a clean a, that's summary? That's a very good, uh, very good starting point, very good summary of uh, okay. what I was saying. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. Let us, let us take a break here, and then we're going to come back and go further with this topic. Okay. Uh, we'll be back with our guest, Michael Pompian. And if you would like to join our conversation, please call 866 866- Four seven two five seven nine zero. I'm Brian Farr with my co-host Ann Hutchins, and you have money in your life. Save on your prescriptions with the RX Savings Plus Drug Discount Card offered by Voice America. It is not insurance and discounts are only available from participating pharmacies, but 9 out of 10 pharmacies participate nationwide. Start saving today. Print your free card online at voiceamerica.rxsavingsplus.com or text the word talk radio to 96362. Do you have financial goals for yourself? Do you want to be smart with money in all areas of your life? If you're ready to become more effective with your personal finances, then you might be ready to hire a financial coach. Since 2002, Brian Farr has helped hundreds of people improve their relationship with money. He's unbiased, honest, and approachable. If you'd like to learn more about financial coaching, visit Brian's website and schedule a free 15-minute consultation at www.brianhfarr.com. The goal of financial coaching is to open up the conversation around money with your spouse, your children, or your extended family. Ann Hutchins works with individuals, families, and financial professionals to improve relationships with money. Her work with clients is confidential, honest, and fun. Visit Ann's website and schedule a free 15-minute consultation at www.abhutchins.com. That's abhutchins.com. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You're listening to Money in Your Life with Brian Farr and Ann Hutchins. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to moneyinyourliferadio at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back. I'm Brian Farr with my co-host, Ann Hutchins, and our guest, Michael Pumpian. Today, we're talking about behavioral finance. And um, right before the break, we were talking about the thinking part of this and the feeling part of this and how to uncover what the biases are and then moving forward with that. And the question that led us into this was whether or not firms are actually using it. And what you're saying, Michael, is that, yes, you're seeing in recent years, particularly in the last couple of years, more firms are using this technique. 
Absolutely. Uh, there's no question that um, they, they are. And what what is even more gratifying, you know, to me is that they're actually using this whole idea of investor personality pretty strongly. Uh, I, as Ann mentioned, I have a book called Behavioral Finance and Investor Types, and I wrote that several years ago. And the reason that I wrote that book was my my ultimate objective with with all of of my books and and my articles is really to make a contribution to the industry to to help advisors work uh, better with their clients. And what I was trying to do, I I outlined the 20 biases in my first book and, you know, came to the the realization that, you know, that's a challenging task to to interview a client and ask them a minimum of 20 questions. You know, do you have this bias? Do you have that bias? And what I noticed was that that certain, there were certain clusters of biases that, that, that people who behaved in a certain way, uh, tended to have certain of these biases. And uh, I remember, you know, the day when it's sort of the light bulb went off and I I created these what I call behavioral investor types based on the underlying biases that that people have. And uh, it really brought a lot of the work together and made it easier to use. That was my, my objective. And what was interesting was, for like the last two years, I haven't really sold that many of those books. Um, it, 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 it was sort of a narrow subject and maybe a bit esoteric. And literally within the last six months, I've had just an, an amazing number of inquiries uh, on that book. Around and that. Uh, it's, it's, it's really you know, fascinating, well, interesting, and gratifying to, to see this. Let's open that up. Let's open that up. I've got the list here in front of me. There's four of them. Preservers, followers, individualists, and accumulators. Did I get that right? That is correct. Okay. Let's talk about these four. Okay. What what are the characteristics? Can I just suggest, Michael, if you can go into detail on what each one of them are, give a brief definition as you go so that our, so that our listeners will know what, what, they are what you're referring to happy to do that right okay so the way that you can think about the behavioral investor types is along the risk tolerance spectrum to begin with so your preservers are the most uh or sorry the least risk tolerant of the investor type uh the next most Risk so, invest. Michael, can I just yeah. jump in? Those are yeah, the people please. that when the market crashed in 2008, those were the people that withdrew their money at that time. Well, um, you know, I, I think I'm not sure that, or they could you know, that, have that been activity the money. was limited to just those types. But, but um, th- those would be the ones that would feel that situation the most and probably were the ones that acted irrationally in terms of, you know, pulling out at the wrong time. Okay, so, um, yes, those are the ones that, that loss aversion is one of the biases that is attached to that investor type. So, yes, the answer to the question is yes. So okay, those great. are, um, as I said, the, the least risk tolerant and, and the ones that tend to feel uh, the emotional pain of losing money. 
uh, when. So back to my earlier comment, when you're dealing with those kinds of clients, often you have to adapt to that type of behavior, trying to change yeah. someone's uh, feeling about, for in this case, losing money or another another bias that's associated with preservers is uh, endowment bias, which essentially means holding on to investments simply because you own them already. Uh, and the, the classic example of that is uh, when you have, uh, let's say you, you inherited some bank stock from your grandfather uh, 20 years ago, and it's you know gone up and down and up and down over the years, and now it's a pretty big position. And you, your advisor says, why are you holding, you know, 8% of your portfolio in one stock? And you say, well, my grandpa gave me that. It's not, and it's not about, is this a good investment? It's about, you know, the, the attachment to the investment. And there's, and there's all kinds of different examples of that. So that's another bias that's associated with preservers. So think of preservers as the guardians of their wealth who are very, very averse to losses, very conservative in their approach. Um, so that's, that's the preserver. Okay. The, the next investor type and think of them as sort of the middle to lower risk tolerant investor is the follower investor type. Mm -hmm. So the follower, think of the follower as, uh, a, 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 an investor who doesn't really have their own ideas about investing, so follows the crowd, um, who um, you, 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 may, you may have heard about people that hear a, about a stock at a cocktail party or read it or hear, it, hear about a stock on TV and go out and buy it the next day because, hey, that sounds pretty good. Mm -hmm. um, without doing, you know, any much in the way of research. Uh, and so that, that is the, is the kind of characterizes the, uh, the follower type of, of investor. Okay. Um, and so what, but the, the, the interesting thing about the follower is the biases of the follower are more cognitive. So if you have a situation where, you know, using my example, uh, and there are others with the follower, but using this example of, re of, a, of a recency bias, which is essentially when you're using uh, the most recent information that you can find to make your decisions, i.e., you just heard about something yesterday, so you're going right. to use it today. Um, that that example is you can actually explain to a follower, hey, that that's not a good decision. They're not getting necessarily emotional about their investing. They're just making bad decisions. Mm -hmm. And in, as an advisor, that's that, that that's an opportunity for you to redirect the client's sure. behavior, uh, you know, in a way that that hopefully is is, is positive and not negative. Um, and uh, so, uh, if, if, as an advisor, if you can recognize this, this is so important because, um, you know, some advisors might be challenged by that situation and not, you know, quite know what to do, but understanding that, that you can potentially change the behavior of, of, a, of, a, of this type of investor, 
is a powerful idea. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the next, the next um, up as we go up the risk tolerance scale, the next uh, type is the independent. And the independent has a medium to high risk tolerance, also has cognitive biases. And so what happens here is you have, a, you have um, uh, an investor who, who does do their own research, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, think, of, think of an engineer who works at uh, Boeing Corporation who really wants to get under the hood about, okay, tell me about this manager. Tell me what their strategy is. What's the, what's the turnover? What's, you know, how, what, what's the dividend yield? You know, somebody who really wants to get into the details uh, of, of an, the investment and the portfolio. And often what can happen here is um, because these people, these types of people, um, do like to do their own research, sometimes they can fall into the trap of believing their own research too strongly. And sure. so there's a bias there within there called conservatism bias. And what happens with conservatism bias is um, you you make a forecast and you end up not being able to move away from that forecast very easily. So mm. if, if a, an independent type of investor says, you know what, I really like Coca-Cola. I think it's a fantastic company. They're expanding in the emerging markets. They've got a great product. They've been around forever. And it's cheap. I want to buy Coca-Cola. Well, it may be cheap because perhaps people have different tastes and preferences about what they're drinking these days. Um, and so when presented with, with contrary information, when somebody makes a forecast, they tend to want to stick to that forecast because they don't want to be proven wrong. Ah. So an independent type of investor may have that bias. Now, is that uh, a bias that the advisor can, can talk with them about? When you say and that's a cognitive. a cognitive bias. That's a cognitive bias. So that's one where um, if you present the, the contrary opinion in a way that doesn't, yeah. I'll use the Offend. word insult, but that's too strong a word, that, that doesn't make them feel wrong, you know, that they're, that they're being necessarily wrong or incorrect, do it in a, in a, in a sophisticated way, that is a behavior that can be, that can be changed. Yeah. Um, confirmation bias is another uh, one that comes into it when, when you talk about independence. And confirmation bias occurs when we seek information that confirms an opinion, but don't seek information that may contradict uh, a view or opinion. Oh, uh, that we, could be a problem. And we see this all the time, <laughs> don't we? You know, we're trying to justify our... So, you, you know, using that Coca-Cola example... The, the client might come to the meeting with an article, a positive article about the prospects for Coca-Cola because that's what they want to believe. Right. Um, and there is all kinds of information that, that can both support and detract from. Now that exactly. we have the Internet, you can exactly. pretty much support you whatever it. you want to support. Exactly. And that's confirmation. So the independent type... Um, you know, these are some of the behaviors that you as an advisor, you know, can look out for. Mm-hmm. Moving on to the most risk tolerant, um, we, I call that the accumulator bias, or sorry, the accumulator type. 
And here you have uh, a high risk tolerance and uh, and very emotional bias biases in this case. So the accumulator. Think of the accumulator as somebody who is, has been successful in their career, uh, a successful business person, a successful athlete, you know, whatever field of endeavor uh, they, they are in, they, they've been successful doing it, and feel, well, if I'm successful in, in business or whatever the endeavor is, right. of course I can be successful in investing. It can't be that hard. Right. And this leads to you know overconfidence bias, and mm-hmm. uh, this is essentially you know believing your your abilities are greater than they actually are. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one that happens here is illusion of control bias, where because uh, let's say you've been able to control the outcome of your career, you can control the outcome of your investment portfolio, and you know that that has been proven time and time and time again that. Mm-hmm. It's not possible to control the markets, or it's impro- it's it's possible to control your risk level, but it's not impo- it's not possible to control the outcome of the investments in your in your portfolio. So, mm-hmm. um, but these are you know these are kind of emotional type of things. Like it's 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 difficult to say to somebody you shouldn't feel like you can you know that you're you you have so much confidence. It's it's a it's more of a feeling that people have um, as opposed to cognitive where you can you're describing it you know in detail how to change someone's opinion so i find that in my in my experience you often as an advisor need to adapt to this kind of behavior um oftentimes because you're dealing with perhaps successful people that have a you know may have a decent sized portfolio um and this gets into a little bit about my theories uh you you may be able to adapt comfortably to to that kind of client. In other words, if you need to, if a person wants to take a little more risk than you would prefer as an advisor, if you if you recommend an allocation, let's say <laughs> to keep it simple, sixty percent stocks, thirty percent bonds, and ten percent cash, and they want to go a little higher on the risk spectrum. Okay, fine. How how about 65, uh, 30, and, and 10, or, or 65, 25, 10. Don't get uh, into a battle with them. Give them so, a little so bit of you that. Know, you, you have to, it's, it's more of a compromise. And, you know, and, and, and that's that adapt, that moderate and adapt idea uh, mm-hmm. that I was getting at. So Yeah. The, you know, uh, I want to emphasize something that you said uh, before, Michael, which is really well said. The idea, uh, and this applies, I think, to all of them, but particularly to the accumulator, the idea that you can control risk, but you can't control the outcome. Yes. It's really... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that's something that, you know, is, is also... Uh, hang on, please. Just one second. Yeah, um, that that's something that uh, you know is 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 something that every every investor really, whether you're an advisor or an investor, to keep in mind is that you know from year to year, you, you're not going to be able to control the return of your portfolio. You know, look, the equity markets were up thirty percent last year, and they were 
you know, down more than that in 2008. Right. And so from year to year, you're not going to be able to control the outcome of something like that, but you can control the amount that you have in equities, for example. Right. Um, and, and a good advisor can be able to model for you, you know, how much risk you're taking. So, so Michael, we're coming up on a, on a break that we'll have to do, but I want, okay. you wrote a, you had a quote from John Maynard Keynes in your mm-hmm. book that I'd love to have you repeat for okay. our listeners about the markets. Yeah, the, the markets can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. That's exactly the quote. So the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. I'm going to take us out, but we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit more about that. So we have our guest, Michael Pompian. You have money in your life. I'm Ann Hutchins with my co-host, Brian Farr. If you'd like to send us an email, please do so at moneyinyourlife at gmail.com. which guests are being featured this week. Read our network press releases and read the blog posts from your favorite hosts. Go to iradioblog.com today. Powered by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. The goal of financial coaching is to open up the conversation around money with your spouse, your children, or your extended family. Ann Hutchins works with individuals, families, and financial professionals to improve relationships with money. Her work with clients is confidential, honest, and fun. Visit Ann's website and schedule a free 15-minute consultation at www.abhutchins.com. That's abhutchins.com. Do you have financial goals for yourself? Do you want to be smart with money in all areas of your life? If you're ready to become more effective with your personal finances, then you might be ready to hire a financial coach. Since 2002, Brian Farr has helped hundreds of people improve their relationship with money. He's unbiased, honest, and approachable. If you'd like to learn more about financial coaching, visit Brian's website and schedule a free 15-minute consultation at www.brianhfarr.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You're listening to Money in Your Life with Brian Farr and Ann Hutchins. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to moneyinyourliferadio at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back. I'm Ann Hutchins with my co-host Brian Farr and our guest Michael Pompian. We are talking about behavioral finance. But before we continue our conversation, Michael, I want to mention in particular your book, that is called Behavioral Finance and Investor Types. And Michael has written four books, as we said. They can all be found on Amazon.com. 
And the, the one that we're talking about particularly is this behavioral finance and investor types. So, Michael, before the break, you uh, you quoted John Maynard Keynes, and the and maybe for those of us who don't necessarily follow or don't really remember irrational exuberance, <laughs> you can you um, translate that that phrase? Sure, sure. So there's numerous examples, uh, you know, in the history of the markets that, you know, of this idea of, you know, the markets can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. So, you know, a classic, you know, example uh, going back to the 2008 crisis is uh, the um, book by Michael Lewis, um, uh, The Big Short. If, yep, if yes. anyone ever read that book, yeah. and there was uh, an, a, a, a hedge fund manager in there. His first name is Michael, but I can't remember his last name right now. Uh, but he was very sure that the these these uh, subprime mortgages were going to blow up, and he put together a fund and. Uh, raise some money to, to put on this trade and he was wrong for like, you know, five years. He, right. he was, he, he, he was reading details of, uh, of the, uh, you know, these legal documents having to do with the subprime loans and the, the tranches of various, uh, structured products. And, you know, for that length of time, you know, the market was saying, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And it was irrationally saying that, 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 that he was wrong. And ultimately, and, and I remember reading about the fact that his investors were calling him up saying, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. But he ultimately was proven right. So unfortunately, a lot of, a lot of his investors withdrew their money, and he, you know, was, was on the wrong end of that. Ultimately, he did make a lot of money, um, but mm-hmm. he, um, you know, he had a hard time staying solvent while the market was irrational. Ultimately, right. you know, it proved it proved he was right. But that's just one example of you know you could be short, uh, you know, technology stocks in the late '90s, and ultimately you would have been right, but you were wrong for. You know, you would have had to continue to pay margin calls for, you know, five years. And if you could right. keep doing that, uh, you, you would have won. Uh, but, and what, uh, you know, what, uh, it, what it underlines is what you've just been saying, Michael, is first know your investor type. And mm-hmm. second, so you have to know how, how willing you are to say, no, the market's irrational. If I'm taking a position, you have to know what your investor type is so that you'll know how comfortable you are betting against something that everybody says is right. And second of all, uh, have a plan. Mm-hmm. No, that's an excellent point, Anne. I, the, you know, the, the worst thing you can do is make a decision um, and then and then go back on that decision uh, and then find out that you were actually right about whatever decision you know you were going to make. You were going to make. It's just that you didn't have the stomach to to stay with the decision. And this happens. You know, this is very common. You know, right. you may have uh, been familiar with. There's a study out there called the Dalbar study, which shows 
the return of mutual funds versus the return of mutual fund investors. Right. And what you find is that mutual fund investors do not earn the return of mutual funds. They earn less than that by you know 300 basis points annually and have so, done so for many years. And the reason is they, they buy and sell at the wrong times. They, right. They, uh, right. You know, right now, uh, what's happened is, and this is a you know kind of an interesting point in time, is that you've had many many retail investors. There's tons and tons of cash still on the sidelines in the retail investment world. Uh, sadly, uh, because you've had a bull market of a hundred plus percent since you know the the market crash of 2008-2009, and this is the time when people are starting to dip their toes back into the water. Um, right. And you know what you need, what investors need to do is look at prospective returns versus you know looking uh, backwards. And right now, valuations are you know okay, so it's not it's not a horrible time to you know to be an equity investor, for example. It's not a good time to be a bond investor, um, but um, it's it's. Uh, so you can, and there's places, there are parts of the bond market that are, you know, okay to invest, and there's parts of the equity markets that are, you know, uh, to make good investments, particularly Europe and emerging markets look reasonably uh, inexpensive. No, emerging markets brings up a, a good example. So emerging markets, from a historical perspective, look very attractive uh, and have looked very attractive for, you know, gosh, a couple of years now. And however, they're, they're highly volatile. You know, just in the last week or you know two weeks, we've seen you know Turkey went down by has gone down by thirty percent in the last month. Uh, Brazil's been down, uh, other places, and it's very scary uh, for these, you know for for these people who have money in emerging markets. Uh, and the worst thing you can do is make the decision to invest and then bail out when they're down because. Right. They'll, they'll they'll probably come back. I mean, they will come back. Yeah, uh, and like this is this is where I find Michael that clients get really confused because they listen to somebody say, "Well, you know, the Dow was up thirty percent last year," and then they say bonds are not a place to be. And what what I think we're all talking about here is make your decisions within a context. So you're not going to put a hundred percent of your portfolio, if you want a long-term performance, you're not going to put 100% of it into stocks and uh, or 100% into bonds. But right. consider the plan and the context that you're making your decisions in right. and talk right. to your advisor and make sure you know how you feel emotionally about losing money, not losing money, looking at headlines that say emerging markets are tanking or bonds right. are down again or right. the stock's right. up 30%. So, yeah. really. That's great. No, that's great. I mean, the, the, like in using the, the investor types that I was talking about, the follower might have heard, oh, and, you know, invest, emerging markets are at, you know, historic lows right now. They make, they make a trade in the emerging markets and then they, the emerging markets go down by, you know, 8% in the subsequent week. Mm. And they say, oh, no, this is not for me. You know, That's sell right. out. And then the next week they're back up even more than, you know, than where they bought them the first time. Yeah. Uh, so just understanding that about yourself 
um, is is key to. At the end of the day, what we're trying, what we're, what what our job as financial advisors is to do is to keep our clients just, uh, invested in their plan, whatever that plan is, whether. You're a conservative investor, an aggressive investor, and you're or you're in the middle. Understanding your goals, your objectives, your risk tolerances, your income needs, your spending needs, keeping that on track and sticking with your plan, uh, it's 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 hard to fail uh, if yeah. if all of that's in place mm-hmm. and you can stick with that plan. It's the it's the switching horses in the middle of the race uh, issue that 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 sabotages so many. So many investors. You know, uh, and that. if I understand it correctly, that that the way that your the the profiles, these four different profiles, mm-hmm. as an investment advisor understands who the person is who's sitting across the desk, who their client are, they're going to be more effective at doing just what you've described. They're going to understand where the panic buttons are coming from, or where the right. lack of action's coming from. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. It make it gives a fuller picture of the client, so the investment manager can become more effective. Right, and we should also say that if your investment manager doesn't doesn't talk about things like this, you you as the client can bring them up. Mm-hmm. This is yeah. how you choose whether you're with the right investment manager, right? If this if this is important to you in making a plan, then ask your advisor if they what they consider when they think about behavioral finance, whether they tie this into the way that they would look at your portfolio and treat you as a client. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and Michael, does your book, for people who manage their own money, for people who don't have investment advisors, mm-hmm. can, can, uh, can the doctor heal himself or herself, as it were, uh, with, with, a, with your book as guidance? I think so. I mean, I, I, I myself, you know, Whenever I'm about to make an investment decision, I try. I think to myself, okay, what biases am I, I know, subject to right now? Mm-hmm. And just by understanding what the what they are, um, the types is getting into the behavioral investor types is, you know, sort of, you know, 102. Uh, but if you get down to the just the 101 level of what are the biases and which ones are applicable to me, I think it makes a big difference for the investor without an advisor mm-hmm. so just uh, to, it, yeah. it can help you from making you know less than optimal decisions right and you had said so there's 20 20 biases if a person were to work through that list i'm going to guess there's probably two or three that all of us would be mo- n- not the same two or three but i would have my favorite two or three or most at risk two or three and and might have three different ones that's right that's right i did a survey uh 4 or 5 years ago of financial advisors um across the world actually and i did find that there were three most common biases that um people Found, you know, these financial advisors saw in their clients overconfidence, loss aversion, and anchoring. But those, you know, aren't necessarily, as you pointed out, Brian, applicable to all, you know, mm-hmm. investors. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those three might be a good place for our listeners to start in. Overconfidence, loss aversion, and the third one was? Anchoring. Anchoring. Anchoring, so anchoring is... We've talked about the other two. We haven't talked about anchoring. Anchoring is also, you know, quite a common um, behavior where 
investors get anchored to a certain price level or 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 uh, of an index or, or or a stock. So, for example, if you buy Coca Cola at fifty dollars a share, that's your reference point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If it's you know forty dollars a share now, or it's sixty dollars a share now, your reference point as the investor is where you bought bought it, right. and irrationally so because you know if it goes down to forty, uh, you think oh I made a bad decision. Well maybe it's worth forty, and maybe your time horizon is really long, and you, if you stick with it, you'll make money. Uh, and conversely, at 60, it might be overvalued, and you should think about selling it. I'm making all of this up just to say that $50 is not your, should not be a reference point. It's the future expected return of the investment from today. That should be a mm-hmm. reference point. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember, and, I remember yeah. when I was working on the trading floor, one of our rules of thumb was that the market doesn't care where you bought it. Right. Exactly. <laughs> that's the exactly right. Care where you bought it. That's, a, that's the exact idea. That's yep. the exact yep. idea. That okay. is the exact idea. Or it doesn't care what its previous high is. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. So those would be the three. If somebody wanted to work with this overconfidence, loss aversion, and anchoring, those were the three that you found were most common in market investors. Correct. Okay. So we could be on the lookout for that and maybe save ourselves yep. some grief. Exactly. And some money. Yeah. That's great. That's yeah. great, Michael. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's see. Um, I have more questions, but I don't know how much time we have we left are, We are running out of time here. I think we're going to have to thank Michael and say this has really been terrific, Michael. Yeah, My pleasure. My pleasure. It was very, it was really, very enjoyable and um, happy to do it anytime. Great. We're really glad to have you. All so, right. yeah. So um, next week, Brian, we're going <laughs> to shift gears, but only slightly. Barbara Waxman will join us to talk about rewiring for retirement. In Barbara's work, she comes face-to-face with long-held beliefs, biases, and barriers and works with her clients to reimagine and overcome the shoulds and stories we tell ourselves about a certain age and what it looks like. Please tune in for another lively discussion. Until then, I'm Ann Hutchins. And I'm Brian Farr. Let's keep this conversation going because you have money in your life. Thank you for making money in your life part of your financial plan this week. Please join your hosts, Ann Hutchins and Brian Farr, again next Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.